Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Our guest today is Michael Kennedy. Michael is a Python instructor, Python-related podcaster. And if you are brand new to the world of Python, you've been hearing a lot about it, you've been wanting to add Python to your toolkit, this is the show for you. Michael goes, well, I was going to say goes deep. Ned, we didn't go deep so much as we went wide. (laughs) We went real wide. And as someone who's used Python a little bit, I found it extremely informative to get a broad perspective on all the different tools and plugins and approaches that Python includes, stuff that I definitely did not know before going into this podcast. Lots of information here. You're going to want to maybe uh, grab something you can take some notes with and enjoy this conversation with Michael Kennedy. Michael Kennedy, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And if you would, sir, tell us who you are and what you do. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me here. It's an honor to be on the show. Uh, What do I do? I do Python things. I've been a programmer for a long time, but also a podcaster for, gosh, nine years. Wow. I know. I've talked to many people about what they're doing with Python, and Python is especially interesting in the programming language space because it's so broadly applicable, right? I've talked to people from the people who did the picture of the black hole, talked to people who run Instagram. I've talked to people who are philosophers and use Python to study like medieval languages. <laughs> you know, so my background, I guess, uh, bringing to this conversation is sort of a lot of programming, but also just interacting with people doing a bunch of different stuff with programming. And so I feel like I can bring maybe a, a unique perspective to your audience through that. When I was focused on trying to pick up some Python skills for some work that I was doing, I listened to your podcast, both your podcasts actually, well, the two that I know of anyway, pretty regularly. So tell people what those podcasts are. Yeah, I have two podcasts, Talk Python to Me, which is like a long form interview show, similar to yours. And then I have one that's more like a audio newsletter with analysis or thoughts (laughs) called Python Bytes. And that's a lot shorter and that covers a bunch of things. We'll spend a couple minutes on it. I also have 250 hours of Python courses (laughs) over at TalkPython for people who dive into that and want to learn more. So that's what I do. That's my full-time job is podcasting and running courses and running my company. So a lot of fun. If you're listening to this and interested in some Python education, I recommend Michael's courses. I've taken at least three of them. I've I've bought at least three that I can remember and uh, got just enormously helpful. Michael is a great educator. Thank you, Ethan. So, okay, Michael. So you're talking to a bunch of folks in this audience who are operators of IT infrastructure. They Mm -hmm. are cloud people, maybe they're networking people, and maybe programming is not native to them, but they're trying to pick it up. They're trying to learn programming. Is that important? Should they really be spending a lot of time learning programming? Yes, with some caveats. So there's been this push Right. We've heard it through politicians and educators like, oh, we should have a learn to code initiatives and there should be way more coders because there's 10 million coding jobs that are going to go unfilled or you know something like that. And I appreciate the sentiment, but what I think we really need is many more people who have things they are super passionate about, like operations, but they have this superpower. They have this capability to go beyond the tools that are just given to you, right? Don't like the way your GUI thing works? Well, write your own program that either uses the API or automates it, right? So I want to start this conversation by framing it as like programming is a superpower that adds on to what you already do and you already know rather than forget what you're doing, go get a computer science degree. Because there's tons of people with computer science degrees, but let's say you're a biologist. If you 
drop out of biology and go into programming, sure, you'll have some awesome skills and probably a good time. If you're the biologist who is really good at programming, you're going to be like in the top 5% of the biologists getting stuff done, right? And so programming is a superpower. We need more people with this power that have things that are not necessarily programming specifically that they're super jazzed about and they can apply it to. Okay. I mean, I agree with programming in the sense that when I've needed to solve a technology problem, knowing how to actually do some level of programming has made it way easier, whether that's writing a simple bash script or, you know, plugging something into PowerShell. Why is Python your focus out of all the programming languages that are out there? It's pretty interesting because you look at it, it looks a little toy-ish, right? It doesn't have semicolons or curly braces, right? Like, so that probably means it's not that real. So <laughs> <laughs> it has this weird white space thing. Now I beat a little bit facetious, but seriously, it doesn't look like the language that should be taken over the world. And yet it's, if not the most popular, one of the most popular programming languages over the last five years, right? I think the reason that this is interesting, and I've done C++, C Sharp, C, lots of JavaScript, lots of different programming languages. So it's not the only thing I've done, but it's the thing that I've been doing the last 10 years and I really love. And the reason, you know, I, I mentioned, I opened this conversation talking about the variety of people I've had on the podcast and all these different angles. And what I'm starting to realize is some of the magic of Python is it kind of fits in this unique space, right? We've got languages that are really easy to get started with. Think Visual Basic 6, or if you want to get real extreme, like Scratch, one of these draggy droppy block type programming things. Sure. They're easy to start with, like for to teach people, but they, they hit an upper limit super quick, right? You wouldn't build Instagram or YouTube with VB6. It just, it wouldn't be possible, right? Maybe it's possible, but it would be insane. As an example, my son learned Scratch in like third grade and quickly hit the limit of what he could do in Scratch when he was trying to make a video game. And so he came to me and he's like, Dad, I want to learn how to program in C. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's a bit of a leap. <laughs> wow, son, what have you been doing? <laughs> I think maybe pointing him at another language that's a little easier, a little gentler, like Python, yes. would make more sense. Yeah. And so Python also is really easy to get started. I've seen it at some of the conferences I go to. There's a funny t-shirt that says, I learned Python. It was a great weekend or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet, so there is some truth to it, right? Like you could learn sort of the syntax and it's not like all the crazy C++ pointers to pointers and all that. But what's interesting and somewhat unique about Python, its upper bound is so much higher. Like you can learn really easy stuff in Python and you can get started and you can be really productive with an extremely partial understanding of what it even is. For example, you don't have to know what like classes or even functions, right? Then maybe somebody says, look, you write these six lines top to bottom. It, it comes with some data science library and now you have machine learning. You're like, that's it. <laughs> well, that, that's what all this hype is about, right? But then as you get a little bit further, you can start to learn things like, oh, there's this idea of functions and reuse, but you don't have to have that in your face straight away. And so I feel like it draws people in with this, like, you know, really, it's really simple. You don't have to do much. But as you need more, there's, you know, more advanced computer science concepts you can bring in, but not before you need them or you're ready for them. 
right? So it kind of is this little bit of a black hole, like it pulls people into it and they don't have to be ejected out to a new language to get what they got to get done. So I think that that's why I think Python is a, a good choice. It's super easy to get started with, to do basic things, but you don't hit that upper bound real quick. The term I'm using for this is a full spectrum language, right? Like it has a, mm. an easy start, but it, it doesn't just end real quick like VB6, for example. Now, are there fundamental programming concepts I should have my head around before I can get into Python? Yes, you probably should. But, you know, a lot of like computer science classes, like let's go take the CS50 or whatever it is at Harvard that's online. It's just all about, we're going to teach you all these deep concepts and eventually you'll be able to build something. And I think, especially with Python, people should think of it in reverse. It's like, what is the minimum thing I need to learn to do something, right? And it might be, I just need to learn how to use some of the other libraries. Like for people who don't necessarily know, there's about a half a million free external libraries that you can just, with one line on the command line, install and then start using, right? So maybe you find three or four of these that solve your problem. You don't even have to think about functions or using stuff across files or abstractions. You just like, what are the few things I got to do here to get started? And then... As you start to see success, as you start to get more experience with it, well, this is kind of clumsy. I wonder if there's something that'll fix that, right? Maybe I've, I want to call this with different data. Maybe I should learn functions, mm. things like that, right? Um, but I think I would encourage people to embrace the full spectrum aspect and just, just bring in what you need to know as you need to know it, because that's one of the cool aspects. Unlike, say, Java or C Sharp, where it's like, you've got all this structure around your code and compilers <laughs> and linkers and, you know, like all this stuff that you got to think about for the very, very simple problem as well. I remember when I was learning Java, and this is going back quite a while, I'm not going to specify years, but when I was learning <laughs> Java, and you had to write, you know, the main function that would be executed. Yeah. And so it was something like public static void main. <laughs> and you had no idea what any of those words meant or what they were doing, but you knew that was the magic incantation to have Java go and do a thing. And it wasn't yes. until like three or four weeks into the course that I understood what each of those terms was actually doing and why they yeah. needed to exist. Yeah. Picking up Python, I didn't have that same experience where it's like, here's 12 esoteric terms that mean nothing to you, but you absolutely have to have them. Yeah, absolutely. And the tooling these days for working with Python code is really, really good, right? We've got PyCharm and we've got VS Code. They both know the structure that the code is supposed to have. They'll already make you fall into the right patterns yeah, and like, stuff like that. I'm a PyCharm user, and uh, it's a commercial IDE, uh, Integrated Development Environment for Python from JetBrains. And when you use PyCharm and you hit a tab or you do a, an open print to complete a statement, it'll kind of know intuitively. These are the kind of things that you could put in there and will uh, help you with autocomplete and, and that kind of stuff. Michael, for the, the, the rest of the show here, you actually built most of this script. Thank you. Um, but you <laughs> broke it up into three segments. So for those of you that are listening who are trying to understand as you're getting into the world of Python, um, what should you be focusing on? What? isn't maybe that important, but might be interesting. And then what you probably don't need, that's the path we're going to follow for the rest of this discussion Excellent. Uh, using Michael's wisdom here. So Michael, let's start by uh, helping people learning Python to understand what they should 
focus on. And the first point you make here is language syntax. Absolutely. That's the t-shirt. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me preface like this whole, basically the rest of the conversation here with there, there's a really great article that came out and I can send you the link if you're interested. It was something like, you're not Facebook, you're not Microsoft, you're not LinkedIn, you're not Netflix. So why are you trying to build software for their context, right? Now, <laughs> granted, there are some people from those companies and those teams that read that, but I am Netflix. But, you know, that's a percent of a percent, right? The zen of it or the, the basic idea was you hear you're supposed to do all these advanced things. You're supposed to have 100% test coverage and continuous integration that has zero downtime deployment to a Kubernetes cluster. You're like, but really all I'm doing is just trying to automate something that I run manually once a week. Do I really need, like <laughs> Kubernetes is hard. Why am I learning that? And so what I tried to break this down to was with that assumption in mind, what is it you really probably should be paying attention to to get started? Where should you look? What maybe is going to be relevant to you, but maybe not. And then there's a bunch of stuff that like, yes, at some point it would be awesome possibly, but you might never get there. And if you try to adopt it for simple problems, you're just going to complicate your life unnecessarily. So the language syntax, that is table stakes. For any programming language, you've got to learn the language syntax. What's really nice about it is it's uh, not too complicated, right? There's not a lot of oddities that require a lot of understanding. And you talked about C and like, you know, if you get void point of your like, oh my gosh, what is happening here? Right. <laughs> Python luckily doesn't have very much of that. It does underneath the covers. If you look at it like that's actually the kind of stuff that's going on, but that's not your problem, right? That's the problem of the core developers that got to write it. And they do that for us and it just works. So learn how to create variables, learn how to do loops, how to maybe do a function, right? But don't be exhaustive about it because as I said, it's like kind of this full spectrum language, like just learn the stuff you need to learn to do what you're trying to solve, right? And then later, like learning about classes, okay, interesting, not a thing I need right now. So let's not worry about mm -hmm. that, right? And let's like build into it. And so in that regard, I really do think you could learn Python, at least the language syntax in a weekend. Now, are you going to make everyone read PEP8 before they begin uh, writing any code? Yeah, so there's a bunch of conventions in the Python space. Many of them are codified in what's called a PEP or a Python Enhancement Proposal. And it's kind of weird. The name is the proposal, but they're accepted as things. So it's no longer proposed, but agreed upon. So maybe that PEP isn't quite the right thing in the end. But PEP 8 is the thing that talks about, here's how you should format your code. One of the things Python really focuses on is readability. That's why Guido adopted the white space instead of curly braces for you know, indentation and membership and like a loop or something, because it forces you to format it in a readable way, right? It sounds kind of tedious, but PyCharm and VS Code do it automatically, so it's not mm -hmm. actually that tedious. So you should check this out as you get into it, but not straight away. What's nice is both those editors that we've mentioned several times automatically, will, you can just say format my code and they'll fix it. And if they're not correct, it'll put a little squiggly under it and say, no, you should have a space here, or this should be indented in this way. So it's omnipresent, but not something you have to worry too much about. One of the things I stumbled over when I tried to start with Python was the concept of virtual environments. Yes. And like, why I needed this thing, what benefit <laughs> was it giving me, and how do I launch it? How do I exit it? 
And that, more than anything else, was actually the thing that tripped me up on trying to get started with Python. I would get frustrated with this virtual mm. environment thing and be like, well, I could probably do it in PowerShell. We're going back to that because that just works. <laughs> right, not to, right. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that is a challenge for beginners. And as you get used to it, you're just like, oh, it's just a habit and you just do it and it's no big deal. The idea is, I mentioned there's about half a million, just under 500,000 external libraries that you can use. Mm-hmm. But... There's many versions of those, and you know this is open source. It's the wild west, right? There, <laughs> there's no 100% guarantees of backwards compatibility across different systems. I mean, we, they change the way the web framework or the data pipeline APIs work, and so the code would break. And so the idea of these virtual environments is you'd like to be able to have one project that has one fixed set of these external tools or the packages you can use. And another one, maybe different ones, right? Maybe you've got this project that's been around for five years and it's a web app and it's using some version of Django and the database stuff. But you want a new one, you want to use the new thing, but for some reason the old thing would break if you would upgrade it. So these virtual environments let you sort of take a isolated snapshot of Python for your project, which is a hassle. And so there's tools like Poetry and Flit and others that try to sort of do this behind the scenes for you. And you just say, poetry, create me a project. And what it's really doing is creating a virtual environment and a file to store the <laughs> the things that are going to be installed into it and so on. So people can check that out. Here's the thing. If you're going to use external packages, generally you'll want to create one of these. And it's a hassle, but it's like the thing you figure out once and then you forget it. If you're not using external libraries, then you know Python comes with many built-in aspects. It's called batteries included is the way they refer to it. It's like there's a bunch of stuff that it can do already without going to pypi.org and using pip to install those, but just it's built in, right? But if you are going to go grab some of those libraries, which that's really where the power of Python lives is all the it's stuff you can bring in externally, then you're going to want one of these virtual environments. It's honestly uh, something I would like to see smoothed over. So it is. So you mentioned package managers just a moment ago. So talk to us about that whole ecosystem of packages and, and package managers and how I install and extend the capability of my Python. Sure. So the most likely way people interact with these is you would just say pip. So, you know, JavaScript, you know, NPM and so on, similar. So you just say PIP, pip, install uh, pandas, pip, install Django. And it figures out not just what is Django, what is the latest version, what is the right compiled version for your machine architecture potentially, but what are the things that Django itself needs and the transitive closure of all the things those things need and so on. And it'll get those installed into one of these virtual environments. Or if you really force it to, it'll just jam it into your system. But you know, you could eventually muck things up doing that. But this is the tool, PIP. There's actually a pretty big initiative to try to make things simpler. You know, the the hassle that Ned talked about, it's real, especially for beginners. You're like, I just want to write a really simple thing with three lines of code. And now you're talking to me about versions and, and you know, pass and installing and like all this other stuff that I don't care about, right? It kind of breaks the zen of like a simple starting experience a little bit there. Uh, so there's a bunch of different projects. We've got Poetry, Flit, PDM, and there's even ones that are based on Python. So you have to have Python installed, then they'll manage your projects. But there's even initiatives that will say, I have a machine that has no Python. How do I even get the right version there? So there's tools that are going to install Python and then create these isolated areas to work with. So it's really open and up in the air right now. We'll see where it lands. There's not a lot of agreement, but there's a lot of options. 
one key thing for someone new, um, when you download that new library, you, you install it, now it's part of your Python environment, you need to include that library in your code. You're actually going to have an include statement. Uh, it's not just those new commands that that library gives you aren't just there unless you include them. Yeah, and so you need to somewhere in one of your Python files, say if I'm, you know, I'll just give you an example of some things that are kind of incredible. You know, maybe I have a website and it doesn't even have an API, but I know somewhere in that website, on that web page, there's a table mixed in an HTML mixed in with all the other HTML bootstrap and react and whatever they put in there. And I want to just get that table as like kind of an Excel grid that I can work with and maybe query some data, right? Maybe this is the page is updated daily and, and so on. So something you can do is you can just pip install pandas and then in your code import pandas. And then you say pandas read HTML. You point it at that thing and you say bracket table three. Or table bracket three, and it's gone to the internet, downloaded the page, parsed it apart, found all the tables, put them into a, a named and ordered list, and then turned that into data frames, kind of like Excel. And it's like three lines of code, and I've gone to the internet and parsed out the table and turned it into like a, a mini Excel. But that import pandas, sometimes written as import pandas as PD, so you can just type PD like a little alias. That's kind of the magic, right? And that's why you care about virtual environments, because it makes that possible. But one of the challenges is I find this language story and the t-shirt the joke really interesting to discuss, because it's true. You can learn like the syntax of the language in a weekend, and I've been doing it for over 12 years, and every day I'm still studying. Every day I'm like, wow, that's new. Oh, that? Oh, that's amazing. Like, how is that congruent with the t-shirt, right? Where the t-shirt is somewhat <laughs> true, and its paradox is, when you say learn Python, what do you mean? Do you mean, I now know how to do the syntax? Quick and easy. There's the hundreds or thousands of classes and functions that are built in with it. More work. If it's also the stuff you could pip install, all of a sudden, there's no chance to keep up, right? There's 500,000 of them, and they're changing every day, and there's new ones every day. And so one of the challenges of being really good at Python is not like, oh, I'm so good at loops. Like, you might be good at loops, but I'm real <laughs> good at loops. Like, no, it's keeping track of all these new things. Like I described in three lines of code, they're easy, but who knew, right? I didn't tell you, and you weren't familiar with pandas to do that thing. Maybe you even use pandas, but you never tried the HTML trick I described, right? You don't know. So how do you know? In a lot of different programming areas, but it's popular in the Python space, we have what are called awesome lists. And so... Over on github.com slash venta slash awesome dash Python, there are many, many of these libraries, kind of like pandas that I described, that are just amazing. And so I don't know how many there are, but hundreds, if not thousands. And what's cool about them is they're broken into different categories. So for example, there's one about network virtualization. It says, what are the libraries that are popular? So it's not just an exhaustive list because that would just be like tags or something in, in PyPI, the place where it lists them. These are ones that are popular that people voted like, hey, people are using this a lot and it should be considered uh, sort of core to this aspect of programming with Python. So for example, one is network virtualization. So we've got ManyNet, which is a network emulator, an API written in Python. We've got Napalm, which is an API to work with network devices. Pox, which is a software-defined network control uh, applications for like OpenFlow, SDN controllers, and stuff like that, right? So the trick is really how do I find these things that result in three lines of awesome code? 
but I didn't know they existed. Right. And and like I said earlier, the reason I chose to use, well, this is before we started recording, but the reason I was learning Python in the first place was I was trying to write a, a framework to work with HashiCorp Vault. And what I discovered is uh, HashiCorp, in addition to a lot of the cloud vendors out there, have published SDKs for Python for their services. So that makes it that much easier to interact with Azure or AWS or or Terraform. Absolutely. And sure, they might have a HTTP API that you could work with. But, you know, how much do you like writing your own OAuth and all these horrible things? <laughs> and then those change, right? And maybe it changes ways that you don't care, but you still have to be kind of compatible with so if you use one of their apis or one of their sdks like the azure python sdk and you program against that that's way more stable and it's also generally much much simpler to use to create a virtual machine or to work with some database managed database or whatever that's another feature that comes up a lot not a feature but a way that people interact with python and that is through jupyter notebooks jupyter spelled with a y instead of an i i have not gotten into jupyter notebooks at all michael why would i want to you might not want to. No. So <laughs> there's a bit of a divide in the way that people write and work with code. So in my day today, I sit down and I fire a PyCharm or something like it. And I have a complex application that's got different files that are isolating different things. And I've got a goal and I want to build a thing that runs like an API to back our mobile apps for the courses, for example. That's a known thing. And when I get it working, it's going to be fixed. But other people, they're more exploring ideas and especially exploring data. Like, hey, what do you think the trends are that are in our traffic or our sales or whatever affected by COVID? And now that COVID's over, what does that change? That's not a, well, I'm going to need a data layer. I'm going to need this. I'm going to need that. That's a, let me play with it and see. And so Jupyter is, it's like a, a text-based sort of mix of graphs and code and explanation that you mix together and you write it in a web app, although that's kind of, it's just an implementation detail. It doesn't really matter that it's in a web app. You pull up a web page like Google Docs, but you write Python code. And then what you get back are maybe little table fragments or you get interactive graphs. And the idea is you're not building a thing that is running in automated systems. You're building a thing that lets you freeform, explore, write a little bit of code, do some more. People do turn them into production things and they do turn them into reports. But the essence is not, I know I've got a, a bunch of architecture and a bunch of things I'm going to put together in a really clear known way. It's like, no, I need to just understand and see pictures and, and go with it. It's more popular in data science and regular science, but you know, lots of people do it. Sort of a lab environment to, to see what yes. you maybe could do and uh, see if it's worth going down that road. And, and eventually you turn it into something production. But would I use Jupiter for production artifacts of some kind, maybe? There's some real interesting stories. There's something called Paper Mill. Have either of you heard of Paper Mill? No, it comes no. out of Netflix, contradicting the you're not Netflix thing I said. What's interesting about Jupyter Notebooks is they store the execution output. So what I mean by that, like, so if I say, go do that thing where it grabs the page and then show me part of the table that I got, it'll list the table and then the next fragment of code will be run. Like, well, let's make a graph out of the table and then let's grab this value, right? But in this page, this HTML page, it has that output even if you close it and you open it back up the last run output was there unless you clear it out so what uh, netflix did is they started you know it's popular with data science anyways their team that was doing a lot of data sciencey things created this thing called paper mill and it allows you to take 
an input into one of these notebooks and then get an output and kind of turn them into an operational thing. And what's interesting is if something crashes in their their pipeline, they can go back instead of trying to read the logs and see what it says and what went wrong, they just pull up the notebook and it has all the outputs and all the statements and basically the complete history with potentially even pictures and then the crash. Like who wouldn't want that for <laughs> what went wrong with my program? That's awesome, yeah. right? So that's way better than about as good as you can get for in-production debugging. And so they've done some interesting things with that. But generally speaking, it's more, the original Zen of it comes out of academia where it's like, I want to have, instead of writing an academic paper that has description, picture, and imagine I wrote code and it was kind of like this that made this picture, you actually have the code and it's live. And you know, so it's sort of a, an executable research paper is what it started out as, but it's been adopted for many things. Okay, what's happening in this show is what I feared would happen. We have way too much information and not enough time. So we're going to hammer through a couple <laughs> of points just really quickly here and then jump into a few other meaty topics that are important. So, Michael, as far as things that you're probably going to need, you, you've you also got listed here your Cloud's Python SDK. You mentioned Azure for Python developers. I know AWS has one too, I believe. Yeah, I'm going to assume Google does, although I'm not positive on that. You mentioned an HTTP library for dealing with APIs and the requests library is the big one. I've worked quite a bit with requests. It just makes dealing with APIs and getting back whatever data blob you get back so much easier. Requests is, is definitely the place to go. And it's pretty well documented, lots of examples. Although you mentioned HTTPX is shinier and newer. It is. So requests by Kenneth Wrights is a very cool project. It's incredibly simple, right? You know, you want to download something from an API and take it from JSON and parse that JSON into something usable. It's literally request.get URL, request.json, done. <laughs> you know, I guess you got to throw in the, the import statement for a completion. So three whole lines, right? Mm -hmm. Super, super nice. One of the things that you might need to decide is, am I just calling one of these things or do I have a thousand, you know, maybe I'm calling an API into like a, a network appliance or something. Got a couple, fine. If you have a thousand and you want to get answers about the whole topology altogether at once, one after another after another might take a long time. And so there's something that got added to Python about four or five years ago that allows you to do what's called asynchronous programming. So if you started a network request, your computer's not busy, your program's not busy, it's waiting for whatever is on the network to come back with an answer. So you could go do other stuff potentially, right? And so it's a way to sort of kick off a bunch of work that you're waiting on things, waiting on a database, waiting on a network. You can do parallel requests, which, yeah, exactly that challenge of, of dealing with hundreds or thousands of devices at once, right? Yeah, so this HTTPX library is very similar to requests, but allows you to write concurrent code. So instead of sending off one request, you could send them off in batches of 100, theoretically, make it a hundred times faster, right? Mm. Depending on how much is local processing, how much you're waiting on, you know, things you're talking to to get their act together. But yeah, th those are the two okay. that I think are really, really nice. It's great to just check, right? You don't even have to have an API. Like, I just want to call this and see that it gave me an answer instead of a timeout or a server error. Just let me ask it, are you there? <laughs> you know, the, even those types of things would be like just a couple of lines of code, right? For example, request.get URL, request.raise for status, which is like, give me an error if the status is not some kind of success code. Otherwise, right. we're good. Uh, another thing you mentioned is an SSH library and you cite uh, Paramico. Yeah, I have really very little experience with doing like automation through SSH. 
Oh, you you don't spend much time with networking devices, do you, Michael? No, I know. I well, I don't, but I know that it might be relevant, so I bring these over. I more often will do like an SSH tunnel and then talk directly to the things on the server. But yeah, I realize that uh, I live in a different world. No, SSH and screen scraping is is a thing, especially for legacy older networking devices, uh, switches and routers, and so on, because there was no other interface to get at things other than maybe like SNMP. So getting structured data out of it. There's a bunch of libraries in Python that actually help. Help with that anyway back to uh, to paramico well yeah with paramico so if if you find yourself typing ssh into a server or a network device and then you give it some commands paramico will let you basically turn that into automation with python that seems super handy <laughs> something that you might want to do right uh, ssh in run a command see what the status is get back out print that out you know or take an action based on it. The last thing you mentioned in your list of things that you should have uh, is a properly configured terminal. And does that go beyond just having my preferred IDE installed? For sure. So a lot of different programming and sort of operations happens through the terminal, right? And if you're on Windows, I strongly recommend people check out Microsoft Terminal, right? Instead of CMD. I mean, cmd.exe has been around, but <laughs> yeah. it's it's been, you know, kind of the the stepchild that didn't get that much love, like, yeah, that doesn't work over there. A lot of the uh, cool UI, terminal-based UI things happen well in Microsoft Terminal. But going beyond that, like making it really nice. So like, oh, my posh adds a bunch of information automatically to your prompt. So like if I'm in a Git repo, it'll show me, are there any uncommitted changes that I can commit or pull? What branch am I in? If I'm in a project with an activated virtual environment, it'll show you the name of the virtual environment, if it's active or if it's absent, you know, it's not. Mm. Uh, what version of Python. In uh, Mac OS, I started using something called Warp. Warp.dev is really awesome. It basically turns your terminal into an editor. So you can go and like double click a word and hit delete and it'll delete that word out of, you know, instead of like, no, no, the only way you interact with this is the left arrow all the way to the front, right? And, you know, like uh, it also has a bunch of AI stuff and, and cool things built into it. But if you don't do that, then things like, oh, my Z shell and oh, my posh on Mac are great. And similarly for Linux, I see a lot of people, you know, they're like, hey, I'm, I'm learning Python. And then you'll see them like, okay, open up your terminal. And it's just like the white terminal with black text with the old bash that's built into Mac or, you know, command prompt that with no configuration. I'm like, no wonder you hate it. Look what you're working with here, right? It's, <laughs> I would hate it too if I didn't use that. But if you install all these other tools I'm talking about, they're like magic, right? Like what was the last SSH command I gave? You type SSH and hit up arrow and it just gives you a big, long searchable list of all of the commands I've previously typed that have SSH in them, right? That's way better than up arrow, up arrow, up arrow, up arrow, up, 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 you know, I guess I didn't type it, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> what are your all's thoughts on it? I'm certainly guilty of the hitting the up arrow rather than retyping the command because I don't remember the exact syntax and I know I ran it like three days ago, yes, right? Exactly. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> so the idea of having something that helps me is great. I've also seen people who have over-customized their terminals, or at least for my tastes, where I find it's too much information being thrown at me at once, as opposed to a much more stripped down and sparse version of the terminal, which it's all going to come down to personal preference and having the option to customize it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of these search your history, I know there's built into Z shell, like reverse search, but that's not the same as say like McFly on Mac or uh, <laughs> something like that, where it basically pulls up an Emacs view of all of your history. And you can even go in there and delete it. You're like, oh my gosh, I typed the API key there, delete that from my history. 
Um, mm. There's a really great comic I saw somewhere. It was this like big beard sort of um, Unix admin type of character. Upper, 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 and one hour later, upper found it and it was just like ls dash l or something. No, <laughs> 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 I knew I typed it there. Oh my gosh! Finally, so um, you don't have to go over the top, but I think there's simple actions you can take to make. Uh, working with your code, working with your environments, and working with you know like SSH type stuff, a lot nicer. So that was a list of things that if you're getting uh, involved in Python, you should be focusing on on these things. We just talked through a whole bunch of them. Now, Michael, we're kind of in the the middle ground here. Things that you you might need, but maybe you don't. The first one you list here is source control in Git. This is where the hot takes start, Ethan. This is where they start. <laughs> but don't you, I mean, you kind of need it, I think. I, I don't know. To interact in a professional way, it seems, especially working on teams, certainly Git seems like the standard. Sure. So where do you live on the spectrum of, I'm just exploring something and I'm just trying it out and I just need an answer once, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've been living in DNS land lately. So I've got this big text and I need to pull out a few pieces of data, maybe reorder them. And I'm never, ever going to run that again. It's better than find and replace and me like reordering a hundred lines by hand, but I'm not going to. So I might write a Python program that does that over uh, a couple of files, right? Maybe, maybe you should know Git. Like I would probably put that in Git, probably, but maybe, maybe not. Okay. And if Git isn't something, you know, and it's intimidating to you and it's going to make you decide, ah, I'm just going to put it in Excel and I'll just do it there. Or, you know, something <laughs> not a good choice uh, like that, right? Then maybe you shouldn't worry about Git. That's what I was thinking. But as you're like, you know, kind of might need to do that again. As soon as two people get involved, yes, absolutely. Mm, but right. even for myself, I have many, many GitHub projects where I use source control religiously, and there's zero chance someone else is going to interact with that. Because it's kind of like I described with this one little odd case, but I know I might want to do it again. I know I might want to know what happened to it. I might want, just as a backup, almost, you know, that that kind of thing. So you might not mean it, but it's, it's in the you may need it category. So you may need it. It's worth pointing out too that IDEs like, like PyCharm integrate with Git you know, very tightly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of PyCharm and all the JetBrains IDEs, I don't know about VS Code. There's probably an extension that I haven't discovered yet. But they have what's called local history, too. So for every file save, they keep kind of a a diff, even Mm -hmm. if it's not in Git. And you're like, oh, what was it last week? And you can go back and pull up the local history, and it'll show you. This is how this file's changed, even without source control. That's not really source control. (laughs) But it is more fine-grained than, like, I, I got it in the morning and I committed it in the evening. Something happened. You know, it's like every save throughout <laughs> the day you can you can go back through. Now, another thing you talk about that you might need, you mentioned a couple of different kinds of tests, integration tests and load tests. Now, I can tell you from experience, I can get away without testing because testing is what you do in production. Hey, it didn't work. <laughs> I'm going to fix it now. Look, and then it works. I mean, the users are going to test it all day long, so <laughs> right. just let them handle it. Well, integration tests and load tests, these are different things. So starting off with, a, with a, what's an integration test? An integration test is, well, there's two ways to look at it, depending on your goal. An integration test is, does the program hang together, right? Like, can I go and click the create new account page 
and will I get a new account? So what is that testing? That's testing the UI, the validation, the logic inside the web app, and possibly the database, right? So is my thing holding together? We've probably heard of unit tests, which are testing, would say, well, is the logic okay? Theoretically, if I got this and then I didn't do anything with it, that's fine. But when you're getting started, these more coarse-grained tests, you can write a couple of them, and they'll really, they'll really save you. Because if something's wrong with the validation, probably... Like the few big tests of the overall thing are going to catch it somewhere, right? Somebody gave me some really good advice that said, look, one of the really easy ways to write tests for a website is just to go to the sitemap that lists all the URLs and see if you can request them all. If they don't crash, like that's not a, a guarantee they're fine. But if something's wrong, there's a good chance at least one of the pages is going to break. Like if there's something wrong with the database or something wrong with the library. So there's these kind of high level tests. You can write a handful of them and they'll cover a lot of ground for you. And then the other is, you know, it, it kind of blows my mind that people release websites, or well, one, that they're slow, that I don't understand that. But two, they release websites, APIs, whatever, and they're like, oh, we had no idea that it couldn't take 100,000 concurrent users. I guess we wasted our money on that Super Bowl ad or whatever, you know? And so there's really cool frameworks like Locust.io that are just ridiculously easy to write, you know, again, a handful of lines of Python code. And they will go and interact with your website and they'll give you cool graphs over time. You can say, I want to start with 10 users, but add five users every five seconds until it crashes and show me graphs over time. And you go, oh, look, looks like here's. But also the user, typically they'll go to view their account page, but then mostly they're shopping. And so they do this search and then they view one of the products. And so you can say, like create a mix of those things. And typically they wait every 15 seconds to 20 seconds and they click around. So put that sort of into the mix and it'll it'll do like realistic testing. And all that is, you go to Locust.io, you can just see like a handful of lines of Python, super easy. A couple other things here. We're just going to mention these in passing. Uh, Docker, people that listen to this are going to understand Docker and kind of know what that's about. Containers have been a pretty frequent topic on day two cloud. Uh, you've mentioned poetry or flit as uh, environment management for uh, virtual environments. We talked about that. Now we haven't talked about linters and you bring up rough or and uh, black as uh, two different tools here. Another piece of advice, don't just use Notepad or even Notepad++ or something real basic to write and work with Python code. There's a couple really good ones. PyCharm, VS Code, there's some others as well, but they're not as helpful as this, right? Like they'll help you write the right code. If you have a problem, your page will get all squiggly and you'll see that there's something wrong, but that's only what you're working on, right? If you've got 20 files that make up your project and you're on one, what about the other 19, right? So there's some tools you can run against just directories, either your whole project or a subdirectory, and they'll look at it and report errors that they might see, but they'll also just fix it. I'll say, here's the, we talked about PEP8, here's the standard style that people who do professional Python have agreed on, how it should be formatted, like if you've got a, a list, it should be wrapped or not wrapped, the commas go here, all that. These tools will just do that. So black has been the stalwart for a long time, and rough is a new one written in Rust that just adopted, you say, rough space format, and then like dot for current directory. It is so fast, you think it's broken. <laughs> they brag about how fast it is, yeah. For me... Medium fast is fine, but this, I ran it, uh, for example, our courses, Talk Python training website has about uh, 20,000 lines of Python code and 380 files. How do I know? Because I ran rough and it told me how many files there were. You type rough format, it's like as fast as LS, maybe faster. Mm. <laughs> 
but it, it it reformatted and processed all those files, right? 20,000 lines of like across, you know, interconnections. And you're like, oh my gosh, how did it do that? It's basically instantaneous, which is nice because then there's no real reason not to adopt it for some kind of automation, right? Which is pretty cool. So for sake of time, I'll mention a couple other ones. You said uh, web scraping, maybe need it, maybe don't. And you said exception and error handling, maybe need it, maybe don't. Um, and we're just going to leave those there. Maybe that's a topic for another day because I want us to close out here with things you probably don't need. Right. Don't waste your time. Yeah, go for it. Well, unit tests are here. And again, keep in mind, who am I speaking to when I make this list, right? I'm not speaking to the people building the API for PayPal, right? You probably want unit tests for something that is that precise and is that used that much. But if I'm building some kind of automation, you know, a little Paramico, a little Pandas, something. Do you really need to write unit tests? It would be nice, but you probably honestly don't need it, especially if you've written maybe a, a couple of integration tests. That probably catches the cases that unit tests will catch anyway. I know people can get like, either they can get to where they feel like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm a bad programmer. I'm bad at Python because I'm not doing this, right? <laughs> like, you know what? You're not Netflix today. It's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> GUI apps. Like, I'm actually a fan of GUI apps, but there's a bunch of really cool tools, like things called uh, something called Rich that lets you create really nice command line apps. Something called Typer that lets you create them as well. But something you can do super easy that people maybe don't know about is two things. In your Python code, if you were to create one of these, you can create what's just called an entry point in the the manifest, the definition of the package. And it says, this thing, if it's installed in my environment, gives me this command. So one that people can check out is um, PyJokes. I believe it's called PyJokes. Check it out on PyPI. And then if you just install it anywhere on your terminal, you just type PyJoke, and it'll give you a, a geek joke of some sort, which is cool. So PyJoke, if I type it right now, what does it say? It says, a programmer is found dead in the shower. Next to their body was a bottle of shampoo with the instructions. Lather, rinse, repeat. Oh, so it's kind of morbid, sorry. But anyway, so <laughs> I now have this capability to create a somewhat a bad taste joke. So how do I get it, though? Um, I just wrote... Like it put one line into there and say, this is now a command line thing and it has these arguments and it just calls this part of my Python program. And then if you're consuming those, there's a really cool thing called pip x. And Ned, you'll like this because there's no virtual environments. There's none of that that you have to worry about. You just say pip x instead of pip, pip x install. And its job is to say, that's something that probably has commands like rough or black or pie jokes. I'm going to create a place in the user profile that's in the path, create a virtual environment, don't tell anyone, and then install this and its dependencies in there. And then now it becomes, through this entry point thing, these are now commands that are just part of my terminal. So like you can apt install something on Linux, you can all pip x install things that are Python-based terminal apps, right? So an example would be glances. I don't know if you guys are familiar with glances. Glances is glorious. So think like top, but to the greatest next degree, right? So you can type glances and it'll give you like progress bar looking things for how much memory and CPU you're using. You can like pull up a bunch of stuff. And anyway, it's really a nice view of sort of the operational bit of your, your server. So you can apt install glances and that will install Python and all the things that it needs on Linux, or you can just pip x install it and let it manage it in a more lightweight way. So pip x and these, there's a bunch of tools you can add through that kind of workflow that are all terminal based. So pretty interesting. 
You talk about how awesome all this stuff is, and this is the section where we probably don't need these things as a neophyte Python programmer. <laughs> well, okay, so what did I say? You to be clear, because no one has the the written version. You don't need GUI apps. I think you can replace them with a bunch of CL apps and like pipx installable. So if somebody okay. says, yeah, yeah. "Create me a utility that will let me manage this device," like you could create them some kind of GUI app through some UI thing that's kind of complicated, or you could just create a terminal one and let them pipx install it. So pipx is the alternative to something you don't need in this case. A um, couple others, uh, we're getting short on time, right? Async, wait, threading, parallelism. If you need it, you need it, but you probably don't need to start there. Is it a big challenge to code in that way when you're dealing with the a- async and so on? It can be, but not always. So people will tell you it's so hard, and I don't know necessarily why they tell you that, because generally it's not. There are types of apps you build with this parallelism that is incredibly hard. Like I want to make a bunch of things happen here, then wait, and then eventually we'll signal that other part of the program to come to life and then they'll share this and like, but that's not what most people do. Most people go, I wanna call this uh, ACP endpoint and I gotta do it a bunch of times. And I know the program is just waiting on the network. So could I just make all those happen at once, right? That's almost identical to regular programming. So it Mm. depends, right? It depends. Like. It can be really hard, but in practice, most of the times it's not hard. So if I need it, I need it. Don't be intimidated by it, but I probably don't need it. Yes. And Python has this async and await syntax that is very, very similar to regular programming, which is way easier than threads and processes and all that business. So go the easy route if you can. I say you probably don't need to create Docker containers. Maybe you do. I mean, for your crowd, maybe, maybe a little bit more than just everyone but I know people get hung up on Kubernetes and Docker and they're like, I can't do anything. You know what? You're just trying to like reorder that text file. Like you don't need it right now. <laughs> Maybe, but right, not right now. <laughs> As opposed to when I said you may need it, is be able to run a container. Like are you going to run this and then that'll enable this thing, right? I'm a big fan of the type hinting stuff they have in Python, but it also goes a little bit against... Okay, well, there's a little history here because because type hints in Python is reasonably new. It is reasonably new. It came in 3.6, I think, something like that. Not too long ago. Python was dynamically typed. It still is dynamically typed. And used to just say, you know, here's a function. It takes items. And you're like, well, I wonder what items is. Is that a list? <laughs> and if it is a list, what's in the list? Is it a bunch of IDs? of the items or is it the items themselves where I got to get the, like, you just don't know. Right. And so they added this ability to say, uh, items and it's a list of item objects that have an ID on it. Right. Something like that. Right. And the point is the hints are, are strictly that they're hints. They're optional. Um, you don't have to define that this is a string or this is whatever it is, you, but you can put them in there for your benefit and the benefit of other people reading your code. Exactly. And I like to put them in there just as a reminder to me and your the IDEs we talked about, they'll tell you if you're doing it wrong. You're like, this thing says it takes a string and you're passing in a number. Just double check your work. You're not doing it right. But again, if you're getting started, don't worry about this stuff. This is the thing you get like six months later. You're like, actually, that would be pretty awesome. I'm going to learn about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, metaprogramming, you can do things like dynamically at runtime, create parts of your program later. You might be using it and don't know. That's great. The ability to create Python packages. We talked about PyPI and its half a million packages, so a bunch of people have already done this. But you don't necessarily need to publish your code that way, right? Uh, You might want to, but in the early days, maybe not. And the whole Gitflow PRs, again, like you probably need source control, but do you need, like, what's your team story? If you're not working with a team, some people still do PRs on themselves, so they kind of 
batch up the work, but you know, it's not where you start. Eh, I just said, you know, reminder, whatever the keyword is there, I already forgot it, but uh, just set a reminder in my code to, oh yeah, I got to add this thing. Exactly. Even if you just do a hash to do colon something that'll come up in your ID is like, here's your to do's you put in your code somewhere. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Michael, we've gone on for almost an hour, which is longer than we typically go on day two cloud, but this was a lot of great information. I'm really glad you were able to share it. But for those people that have been a little bit overwhelmed, maybe give them, give them three takeaways, just some, some bullet points they can remember from this discussion. Well, first of all, embrace the t-shirt, you know, learn a little bit of the basics. Don't try to overdo it. Just learn a little bit each day and you'll be surprised six months the types of things you're building. I've seen it from a bunch of people on the podcast. Like, oh, I'm not a programmer. But then I did this thing, and now I somehow have come up with some incredible result that people are amazed at. And, and like, how do you get from one to the other? Well, you do a little bit of work each day. You start like, well, what packages could I do this with? And then, well, how could I make that so it's a little more flexible? And how do I put a little UI? Out? Like, you just sort of bit by bit. So a lot of beginners look at the end result and they go, that's daunting. I can't do that. But if you take it step by step, like almost every step is like, well, that's easy. That's easy. That's easy. That's easy. I'm done. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so em- embrace that and just do a little bit each day. And uh, yeah, another one, just reiterate, you're not Google, you're not Facebook, you're not Instagram, generally speaking. <laughs> so you embrace the the aspects of programming and, and these tools and disciplines that make sense for you and don't overdo it. And I guess closing out, the Python community is super welcoming. I've met so many people that go, say, to the first major conference, PyCon or something like that. They're like, this is my first time I came here. I didn't think I would fit in, but I've just... I'm so inspired to do more and everyone's just doing cool stuff and we're really welcoming. And there's the main conference that happens once a year, but there's one in Europe, but there's also tons of local conferences, right? There's one in Seattle happening uh, next that here that I could go to, right? I'm in Portland and so on. And then there's also podcasts and meetups and stuff. So just get out there. People are friendly and welcoming. Yeah. So speaking of podcast websites and so on, Michael, just a review for us where people can follow you and uh, consume your courses and all that. Absolutely. So Talk Python to me is at talkpython.fm. Python Bytes, the newsletter one, is at pythonbytes.fm. All my writing, as well as links to social, Mastodon, and GitHub, and so on, is at mkennedy.codes. And finally, the, all the courses people want to take it. We have six that are free, I think, and we have mobile apps. You can take them in there, all that. Talkpython.fm slash courses. Awesome. Michael Kennedy, thank you very much for joining us today. We'll have all those links and more in the show notes at packetpushers.net. Just look for a podcast and then day two cloud up in the title bar there and you can find this episode. Again, thanks, Michael, for joining us. Virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit Ned or I up on LinkedIn, Ethan Banks, Ned Bellavance. Connect with us and then uh, tell us what you want us to work on for another show. And if you like shows like this for your professional career development, you can dive deeper into the world of packet pushers at packetpushers.net. We have several other podcast series like Heavy Networking, Heavy Strategy, Heavy Wireless. We, we have a thing with Heavy, okay? Kubernetes <laughs> Unpacked, IPv6 Buzz, Network Break, all designed for your professional career development. As we said, we make it easy for you to keep up with the IT industry and seem like the smartest engineer in the room. Even if you're not, don't worry, we won't tell. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.